Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Albert. I'm the lead pastor of the Tapestry Church Network. I've been on vacation for the last three weeks, and so it's good to be back, but it doesn't stop raining here, does it? Like, I had forgotten. Like, I've been in 36 degrees heat for like 36... All that being said, it's coming back. It's miserable, I tell you. Okay. Uh, all that being said is, I want to offer my words of congratulations because today we come to the end of our Isaiah series, so we made it. So give yourself a pat on the back, or give yourself, uh, the person on the ne sitting next to you a pat on the back, gently, very gently, and say, well done, well done. Good. Because Isaiah has not been an easy book to study, right? There's so much that we have looked at. So uh, well done, everyone, and today we come to its conclusion. Now, in the last few months, as we've been looking at Isaiah, more or less, we've been able to see how Isaiah is divided into three different periods or three different sections. And they are, first slide, the pre-exilic time period, which is outlined in chapters 1 to 39. This is before Israel goes into exile. The exilic period, where Isaiah writes to them while in exile in chapters 40 to 55, and then post-exilic, when they come out of exile in chapters 56 and 66. So that pretty much gives you a general outline of the book of Isaiah. There's a pre-exilic section, an exilic section, and a post-exilic section, section, Sorry, and that's why I'll try to summarize today. So the first is what we call the pre-exilic. The period is found in chapters 1 to 39 when Isaiah is writing to the kingdom of Israel to the north and the kingdom of Judah to the south, and this happens around the 8th century BCE. And throughout these 39 chapters, Isaiah is urging the Israelites to repent and to turn back to God, but his message was scorned and rejected. The people would not stop their worship of other gods and other idols, and because of their worship of idols, Judah became increasingly corrupt, greedy, and unjust. You are what you worship. And the nation became as blind and deaf as the dead wooden stumps that they worshipped. Blind and deaf, not only to God, but blind and deaf to the plight of others, leading to the oppression of poor, racial prejudice, and the exploitation of others. And so Isaiah is calling Judah and Israel to a new authentic faith, but they would not listen. Despite Isaiah's warnings, it got so bad that God had no other choice but first to let the Assyrians come over and obliterate the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, and then second for the Babylonian Empire to come and capture Jerusalem. So here's a map of what happens. So Babylon, as you can see on the far right, under King Nebuchadnezzar, comes up, takes over Assyria, so basically taking over the entire Middle East and coming down from the northeast and coming and stopping in Judah and taking over Jerusalem and basically burning Jerusalem down to the ground. Interestingly enough, the Babylonians had a fascinating way of dealing with conquered nations. That after conquering Jerusalem, the Babylonians selected the leading people of the city for deportation. The tactic was to remove people of all influence. People like Daniel and his three friends, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Benny. Kind of like the people like Kennedy Stewart or Jim Patterson or the Elias Petersons of Jerusalem. This way, Babylon would not only benefit from getting the cream of the crop, right? The leaders. But this way, the people left behind would be easier to control. And so, next map, you'll see that they basically bring Blue Line, lead all the people out 900 miles away from Jerusalem to live now in Babylon. 
Jerusalem is nothing more than a faded memory. It is a strange land and with the strange customs, and there is no comfort to be found in their present circumstances. Exile lasted for one year, and then two years, and then five years, and then ten years. And by the time uh, we read of this, Israel has been in exile for 70 years, but Babylon, and all hope of going home was eventually being extinguished. But then Isaiah speaks up in chapter 40 which leads to the second time period. In chapters 40 to 55, Isaiah is writing to those in exile in Babylon around 6th century BCE, a section that begins with these amazing words. So it begins in Isaiah 40. And just listen to these words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Speaking for God, Isaiah says, comfort, comfort, not once, magnitude. In Hebrew, words are repeated or doubled in order to show intensity and magnitude. If you remember Isaiah's commission back in Isaiah 6, when these winged angelic seraphim begin flying around the temple and worshiping God, they do not only sing God as being holy, and not only God is holy, holy, no, 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 God is perfectly holy, holy, holy. That repetition of words in Hebrew language conveys magnitude. So when God says to His people, comfort, comfort, this is not just a little bit of comfort. No, this is big time comfort. And what is really cool is that the original root word for the word comfort reflects the idea of a big, deep breath. And I love that. Don't hyperventilate, don't stress out, don't worry, don't cry, just take a deep breath. It's going to be all right. So what a promise this is, that God will lead His people out of Babylon. God will march before His people through 900 miles of geographical wilderness. He will raise the valley, lower the mountains, and make the straight path. And not only that, He will send this mysterious servant, which we talked about last week, which will make it happen, paid for. Seventy years of exile. Israel's sins have been paid for. So imagine being in exile and all of a sudden hearing these words, comfort, comfort, take a deep breath. It's going to be okay because you're going home. Pack up your bags. I'm a God of fresh starts. I'm a God of second chances. And I'm a God of new beginnings. And that exactly is what happens historically. The Israelites go home that the Babylonians are soon to be conquered by the Persians, and eventually the Persian king Cyrus will create the conditions and allow the possibility for the Israelites under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls and the temple, which then leads to the last time period, right? From chapters 56 to 66, which we're going to be dealing with today, Isaiah is writing to the Israelites that have left Babylon and are now back home. So last slide or map, you can just follow the green line that they were in Babylon, but now they're able to come back home into Jerusalem where they're hoping to rebuild the temple and for everything to begin anew. So just imagine how important Isaiah's words are here. The Israelites are about to start all over again. They're back to their homeland. They're trying to not to only rebuild their own city, but their own country, and also to forge a new identity. What kind of nation are they going to be? What kind of people will they be? And so what does Isaiah tell them? What does Isaiah, what is his word to these people now? 
And this is where we pick things up in chapter 61 of Isaiah, our text for today. It's a bit long, but man, loaded with stuff. It starts in verse 1, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Picking up in verse 7, instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of a disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice." I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. And the grand finale in verse 10, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteous and praise spring before all nations. Isn't that good? Like wouldn't we love to hear that word spoken to us? that Isaiah is again reminding Israel of their covenant with God, and in doing so, he throws together all these beautiful promises. In verse 7, it talks about how they will receive a double inheritance and blessing from God. In verse 10, how God will clothe them with garments of salvation and robes of righteousness. In verse 11, how they will be like a garden that will thrive and flourish. And my favorite of them all in verse 10, when Isaiah uses the metaphor of a marriage, to express this beautiful, intimate relationship that he wants with his children. What a fantastic word, right, to the Israelites as they return back to exile. But it's in the midst of this promise, there's also a charge. There's a call to obedience. There is a reminder to remember about how they are supposed to. The Spirit of the... Again, going back to verse 1, it reads like this. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. The year of the Lord's favor. Where in Scripture do we first hear about this idea of the year of the Lord's favor? Anyone? In the book of Leviticus, very good. It's in Leviticus where we get this biblical concept of something called the year of Jubilee. Have you guys heard about this term, Jubilee? Yeah? Well, if you don't, let me tell you. In Leviticus, there are a lot of rules and a lot of laws, and some of these laws have to deal with the whole idea of rest. That every seven days, everyone was to actually stop working and to rest on the seventh day, just like how God worked for six days of creation and rested on the seventh. And this seventh day we call Sabbath, right. And I shared about the importance of Sabbath back at the Chan Center at our anniversary just last month. Well, Sabbath is not a day off, it's a day with God, right? It's a six plus one rhythm, a rhythm that brings renewal and restoration and rest. Well, the Sabbath idea was so important 
that in Leviticus, it talks about taking one year every seven years where everyone was to take a Sabbath for the entire year. And it is something which we now know as sabbatical, right? You've heard this term, how sometimes professors and pastors take a year off, right? To rest, to enjoy God, and to study. Interestingly enough, in Leviticus, people were not even allowed to farm the land during the sabbatical year. So no planting, no pruning. As a vivid, were just only to eat what was grown naturally. And they did so as a vivid reminder that God was in charge. He owned the land, and God would provide. Well, the Sabbath idea of rest did not stop at the sabbatical, for we read in Leviticus that every seven times they did this cycle of seven years, they would then, after the 49th year, throw in a special year, the 50th year, and they would call this the year of jubilee. And the year of jubilee was a year of jubilation. That's the meaning of the word, right? Jubilee, jubilation. Because it's a year in which slaves were released from bondage, land returned to the original owners, debt canceled, and those in prison were to set, be set free. Now, before you worry that, oh my goodness, you're letting all the murderers outside of prison, <laughs> crimes like murder actually had the death penalty back then. So prisons back then were actually for those poor debtors who couldn't pay back their debts or loans. So it's quite obvious then the importance of Jubilee and why it was a jubilation for the poor. Because, for instance, if you had run into financial trouble for the previous 49 years, and then you had to sell the farm, or worse yet, you had to sell yourself or your own children in order to pay off the debt, but in the year of Jubilee, you were all set free. Your debts were canceled. You were given a fresh start. Imagine then going home reunited with your family, restored to the land that your family had owned for generations. It's a whole brand new beginning. So are you beginning to understand why God inaugurated this idea of Jubilee? It's an entire year of freedom and restoration, and not only that, a time of spiritual reflection and realize that everything, everything we own, land, possessions, property, everything belonged to God. Celebrate the year of Jubilee. How many times did the nation of Israel actually celebrate the year of Jubilee? Never. Zip, zil, not once. In fact, they never even properly celebrated a proper sabbatical ever. That in its history as a nation, they never trusted God enough to even try it out. It was too hard. It was too hard for the Israelites to do. It's too hard to give up control of their slaves, their land, and their wealth. And this is one of the reasons why after 490 years of living in that promised land, God punished the Israelites by allowing the Babylonians to conquer them and be taken into captivity. Israel was in exile in Babylon for 70 years. Have you ever wondered why exactly 70 years? Because that is the exact number of sabbatical years they had failed to observe. They were punished for what they did not do and for their disobedience. Every year, for every sabbatical they missed. Are you now beginning to see how Isaiah 61 is so, so important and profound? That now that the Israelites are able to return back to the land, the prophet Isaiah is here reminding the Israelites about what they are supposed to be about. 
You're no longer in exile. Your sins have been paid for. You get to go back home. But do not forget why you were put in exile in the first place. It's time to live differently. It's time to be obedient. Do not forget about Jubilee. Do not forget about sabbatical. Do not forget about Sabbath. Isaiah is clear what God expects of them. Help the poor, heal the heartbroken, announce freedom for the oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this whole idea of the year of the Lord's favor gets picked up in the New Testament as well, right? Actually, almost verbatim. Because where have you heard these exact words of Isaiah 61? Jesus spoken in the New Testament. Jesus, very good, again. Because Jesus takes these words and He speaks them verbatim. The year of Jubilee that was first announced in Leviticus, prophesied by Isaiah, becomes the full fruition in Jesus. So, hang on to your seats. This is a good one. Jesus went to Nazareth, where He had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day He went into the synagogue, as was His custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Him. Unrolling it, He found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on Me. Because He anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in the climax in verse 20, then He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on Him. And He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, it's very clear in our text that Jesus deliberately chose Isaiah 61 to be read. Now, I remember the very first sermons I preached here at the TAP when we got started 15 years ago. They were on the Samaritan woman in John 4, and they were from the book of Acts. It was about um, Peter's dream as well as the um, saving of Lydia. Because I, wanted to, I chose those texts because I wanted to make clear to everyone who started coming that that's the kind of church we were going to be, a tapestry of welcome and inclusion for everyone regardless of who they are. And I think Jesus is actually doing the exact thing, that Jesus deliberately chooses Isaiah 61 as His very first sermon ever recorded in Scripture. This is it. And why does He pick Isaiah 61? Because He wants it be us to know clearly what His mission and His message was all about, and His message was to preach the good news. To preach the good news is to preach the gospel. And the gospel is not only about being spiritually saved, it's about being saved in every which possible way. I think, unfortunately, that we Christians have spiritualized it all, that we often think of salvation or being saved as something that's otherworldly, heaven, and not salvation in the here and now. That the gospel is not only about deliverance from sin, which it is, and thank goodness it is, but it's also about deliverance from poverty, oppression, and slavery. Jesus says He came to preach good news to who? The poor. And the poor is not only to be understood as those who are poor in spirit, but those who are economically poor as well. To proclaim freedom for the prisoners is not only about freedom for those that have been, um, need bondage, like need freedom from bondage of sin, but also to those who are falsely imprisoned and in debt. Recovery of sight for the blind 
is not only those who are spiritually blind, but also that are physically blind, deaf, and lame. To release the oppressed is not only about those who are oppressed from guilt and shame, but those who are economically and socially marginalized. After reciting Isaiah, Jesus says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your reading. Did you hear that? Today, this very day, Isaiah's words in chapter 61 are being fulfilled. Do you understand the gravity of which Jesus is saying? Jesus is announcing the year of Jubilee. The time of Jubilee is to start now. That Jesus enabled the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk. Jesus then is not only talking about a single year, you know, every 50th year of Jubilee, but an ongoing spirit of Jubilee. Not a single year, but every year. Jesus began it, and now we are to live it. The year of the Lord's favor then is actually synonymous with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is growing like a mustard seed, small but growing, pervading, spreading out. And we, the disciples of Jesus, need to embody the kingdom in what we do and who we are. So friends, how are we living out this year of Jubilee? When was the last time you actually did something for the poor? When was the last time that we helped someone with the recovery of sight, not only those who are spiritually blind, but physically blind, lame, deaf, and emotionally in need? Friends, how are we actually living out the spirit of Jubilee and the kingdom of God today? Last point. One of the most interesting things that Jesus does in Isaiah is not only what he decides to say, but what he decides not to say. So here are the two passages side by side. On the left is Isaiah 61. On the right is Luke 4. And Jesus begins exactly almost the same way that Isaiah begins. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. All the same, there's a little bit of variance in the middle, but look at the end. Jesus ends with to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But what does he do? avoid. He omits Isaiah's next line to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Why does he do that? Isn't that odd? I mean, you're quoting Isaiah and Jesus actually stops mid-verse. Why doesn't he talk about the vengeance of, or the justice of God? Justice, what do we mean when we mean justice? Justice has two parts. Justice is about, yes, lifting up the victim, but justice is also about punishing the perpetrator, right? Justice has two parts. Justice is, yes, about fairness and charity and equality, lift up the poor to bind up the brokenhearted, but justice is also about retribution and punishment for the people, the wicked who do things wrong. And if we're honest with ourselves, are we not the wicked? We have not loved God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Not even close. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We don't even know our neighbor's names. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have not ushered in the kingdom of heaven. We have not ushered in a year of jubilee. And for that, we certainly deserve condemnation and punishment, don't we? And Jesus knows that. 
Jesus knows exactly what we deserve. And maybe that's why Jesus decides to omit this line in Isaiah about bringing vengeance. Because Jesus knows what we deserve, but He, in out of His love, will take it from us. Quite simply, in omitting that line, Jesus makes it very clear that He did not bring vengeance of God. He came to bear the vengeance of God. That Jesus did not come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. Tim Keller succinctly puts it better than I could when he writes this. Jesus did not come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. The reason he could say, I've come to lift up the oppressed and not say I've come to punish the wicked was because he came to take the punishment that we, the wicked, deserve. He didn't just stand with us. He didn't just stand by us. When he went to the cross, Jesus Christ stood in full. Because the judgment, he took the punishment we deserve. The judgment came down on him. And because the judgment came down on him, we can be accepted. We can be loved and he can stand by us forever, even when we fail, because our sins are forgiven. Isn't that amazing? Jesus takes the punishment we deserve. He takes the vengeance of God upon Himself on the cross. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this amazing act of grace and love? If Isaiah has taught us anything, it is that we, like Israel, are given a choice. Do we respond to this grace? Do we respond to this forgiveness? Do we respond to this post-exile salvation in our lives? Because if you think about it, we have all been exiled. We have all been banished. We have all had to uh, be separate from God, and yet God comes after us and was wanting to bring us home. So how do we respond to this act of salvation? Do we respond with repentance, obedience, and worship? Or do we ignore God and go back to living the life we've always lived? Let me say that again. If Isaiah has taught us anything, chapters 1 to 39 is this urge to repent. Chapters 40 to 66 is the salvation that comes to us. If Isaiah teaches us anything, is that we are given a choice. We have been saved. We have a new beginning. We have this second chance. Do we respond to this grace, this forgiveness, this love with repentance, obedience, and worship? Or do we ignore God and go back to how we've always lived? There are only two choices. This Christmas season, what will be our choice? Father, let's pray. Father God, out of your great amazing love, you sent your Son humbly on Christmas as one of us in a manger, in a barn, becoming one of us that begins this road to the cross. Father God, I pray that we as a people and a community will respond to that love by loving you in return and desiring to follow your son Jesus. Help us be obedient. Help us be people of worship and gratitude and thanksgiving. And help us follow your son Jesus with all our heart, soul, and mind. And help us love our neighbors as 
you love our neighbors made in your image. Father God, like the Israelites, it's too easy to go back that same path of worship of idols and the worship of self. And even this Christmas season, how much of it is about our own needs and desires and wants? And how much of it needs to be hearing your heartbeat, loving your people, proclaiming the kingdom in all that we do. And it's hard and we can't do it ourselves, so God, we ask for your spirit to come. Soften our hearts, break our hearts, change us, speak to us, and save us. Continue to do your saving work in our lives. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen.